right. Would you take the word of God this evening with me and turn to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. From chapter 21, chapter 20 we saw uh, the Ten Commandments were given, chapter 21 through chapter 23. Uh, God gives to the children of Israel through Moses the judgments of the Lord. And uh, between chapter 23 and chapter 25, chapter 25 we have the beginning of instructions concerning the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And those are going to be laid out in the uh, next chapters and there will be some wonderful things communicated in there uh, about Jesus Christ and uh, certainly I look forward to that. Uh, but chapter 24 and between that we find a, um, how can I put it? Verse 21 through 23, we have the individual judgments. Chapter 24 is a description of the time and the place that God communicated those judgments to the children of Israel, and also how, when God communicated the instruction concerning the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And so chapter 24 is or chapter 21, 22, and 23 is what God said. Chapter 25 about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, go on in the next few chapters, is about what God said. Chapter 24 is where did He say it? How did He say it? What are the circumstances? Uh, where did Moses go to get this revelation, to hear about those judgments? And, and how did God want this to be done? And so I think we learned some things in this 24th chapter that Lord willing might be a help to us uh, because this is the place where God communicates or communicated to Moses what he wanted his people to know. And so we're going to read here Exodus chapter 24 verse 1 through 18. We're going to read all of the verses there and we're going to consider this meeting with God and uh, maybe let me bring your attention to a few words before we read it. Uh, if we pay attention to how many times God says to his people, come up, come up. Meaning that they are to come up where he is. And let me just preliminary make a remark that when we think about worshiping God, when we think about communion with God, there is a trend going on within Christendom which, emphasizing, which emphasizes bringing God down. And what I mean by that is, today we have songs within Christendom that say, that are entitled like this, JC is in the house. JC being short for Jesus Christ. Uh, where God is brought down to man and man does not come up to where God is. Now certainly where we are right now, we can't come up to God where He is. And although God is coming down on this mountain, He still wants men to come up. And so there's something here we have to understand about our attitude towards God, the disposition with which we come to God, and where is the place that God communicates with man, and what is the mindset that God wants man to have when man approaches Him? 
And I think we learned some of those things in this chapter. And so we're going to read the chapter. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word this evening, Exodus chapter 24, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Exodus 24 and verse 1. And he, that's God, said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord. But they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar un under the, the hill, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of the sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God, and did eat and drink. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount, and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone, and a law, and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us, until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day, understand what that means, Moses waited when he got up to the top, he waited for six days, just to put, that's Monday through Saturday. God did not speak for six days. Moses is just there, waiting. And on the seventh day, he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. 
And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. I'd like to bring your attention back to verse 12. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount, notice those next words, and be there. I'd like to preach this evening on this thought. Come up to me and be there. Come up to me and be there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening uh, for your word. And as we consider this scene, we've read in the last few chapters, we'll read in the next few chapters the specific things that you said to Moses. But yet you give us the opportunity to consider the circumstances of when you spoke to Moses and what you wanted Moses to communicate to your people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn some things about you and how we might approach you, what uh, our disposition is to be and what our mindset is to be. So, Lord, give us understanding and teach us by your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Throughout this chapter, we have the repeated command of God to Moses to come up. Come up. Again and again, they come up. And as we see in, uh, in happening a number of times in this chapter, at least twice, is that there is a portion, not all the children of Israel are going to come up, but a portion of them, uh, namely Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders are to come up, but to a certain place. And we don't know what that place is, but they are to come up nonetheless higher than uh, where the children of Israel were. But then there is a second stage where, the, uh, where Aaron and uh, Nadab and Abihu are to remain with the 70 elders, and then Moses himself is going to go up to a second level. And so if you would, you, let's put it this way, that throughout this chapter we find three steps. At the bottom, God says, come up. And there is a group that comes up, Moses, uh, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, they come up, but then there is another place that is nearer to God. And in that place, we see that, that uh, Moses, and in the second uh, portion, we find that Joshua, Moses' minister, came up with him. And so as we look at this chapter here, this is God's people approaching God. And again, the emphasis throughout this chapter is that every time that there is to be a meeting with God where God speaks, every single time, God wants Moses to come up. To come up. Now, let me ask you this question. We might think this to be insignificant. But as we look at this chapter, could not God have spoken to them in the valley? Of course He could have. God can speak anywhere. But here through this encounter, God, before He speaks, He is teaching His people something about how there is a way that, and a perspective on our approach to God. And I think that this is designed so that we might recognize that God is not a man like we are. That God is to be seen as to be high and lifted up. In that when God, that any time that God speaks to man, man has to have an understanding. 
that He is above man. As we look through this chapter, and I'd like to uh, basically just go through this chapter, point out some things that we learned in this chapter, but by the end, I would like to see here, as we see in this mountain, this is the place I will call this the place of communion. Later we'll read that the Bible says that God spoke to Moses uh, face to face as a man speaketh to his friend. So that is the place of communion. And every time that God spoke to Moses, he wanted Moses to come up. And so I want to end the message by talking about what we learned about communion with God. But as we proceed through this chapter, I'd like to notice several things. The first thing we notice in the first few opening verses, the Bible says that God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses, notice, to come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel. And notice what they are to do. They are to worship, he says, worship ye afar off. And we find here verse 1 is step 1. In step 1, there are a limited group of people. Now the 70 elders are all representatives of the nation of Israel. Then you have men such as uh, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and we know that Aaron is acting as the priest. Uh, and then there's Moses. And so they all take this first step of coming to God. And so notice there is a specific purpose that God wants them to do as they take the first step. Notice before God speaks to any of them, He says, I want you to come up. And when you get there, I want you to worship. Now you're still, when you worship, you're still going to be afar off. Notice what He says at the end of verse 1. And worship ye afar off. In other words here, uh, the, you could say that the direct presence of God is manifested at the top of the mountain. But here he tells them before you, when you think about worship, you don't necessarily need to be in the very presence of God at the top of the mountain. You can worship afar off. Now we know that there is a, the glory of God is manifested at the top of the mountain. But yet their approach here, uh, it tells us about their approach. And, and so I want to pause here and ask, what is worship? I think we should ask ourselves, what is worship? And I fear that there might be a little confusion today about what worship is. Now, sometimes we tend to equate words, as I've talked on Wednesday, we tend to equate words that we understand them in the 21st century and we don't understand really the definition of the words when they were first given. And so today, the understanding that we have of worship is this, that, well, when we come together and we sing, that is worship. And so many people have in their mindset that, well, worship is music, music is worship, and the truth is many people today worship music. But that's not what worship is. You see, I would fit in the category when we come together and we meet together and we sing, I would fit that into the category of praise. We are praising God. We are lifting up our voices and we are blessing the Lord's name. We are praising the Lord's name. We are magnifying the Lord's name. That is what we are doing. Now, it is possible for us to worship while we praise, but we have to separate the two. It's possible for someone to praise, right, while now worshiping. And so, but what is worship? What does it mean to worship? Well, let me put it this way as plainly as I can. Let's talk about what the word actually means. 
See, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have a combination of, for example, the scene in Revelation chapter 4. You find that the four and twenty elders, uh, they praise the Lord, they sang the praise of the Lord, but then they do something separate. They fall down and worship, and that is separate from them praising God. They do those two things at a separate and distinct time, which tells us that praise is not necessarily worship and that worship is not necessarily praise. But what does it mean to worship? The word worship actually literally means to prostrate oneself. The word worship itself means to stoop, to bow. That's what the word literally means. It means to be in the sense, in the, in the spiritual sense, in the heart, not just in the act of bowing down or to becoming prostrate before God, but it means basically for us to be brought low. We might put it this way. It means to have the arrogance knocked out of us. Let me ask you this. If I came to you one day and I physically bowed myself down before you, you'd think it's strange, wouldn't you? What are you doing? Don't don't do that. I would imagine that you would say, wait, don't do that. Don't bow before me. I don't deserve anybody's worship. You see, that act, if I came to you and I sang to you and talked about saying how wonderful you were, you said, don't sing to me. That's strange. But if I bow down, you would say, don't worship me. That, don't worship. You see the difference? And so the act of bowing down is the act of stooping down, but also in heart, in spirit, it means to be brought low and to have the arrogance or the pride that, by the way, is present in all of our lives, to have the pride knocked out of us. That's what it means. You see, we ask ourselves here this question, as God says, I want you to come up, and before you get to the top, and I'm going to ask Moses to take the next, next step and to go a little further, but while you come up, I want you to worship me afar off. And what he is saying to them, I want you to bow down. I want you to worship me. I want you to be brought low. I want you to be prostrate. I want you to have all of the arrogance and the pride knocked out of you. That's what I want. I don't want you to come to God thinking that you deserve to be in the presence of God. I want you to understand that you need to come and you need to worship afar off. Before you come to God, he speaks of, by the way, it's possible for somebody to, phys- somebody to physically bow down, but his heart be far removed from God. But what about the reverse? Is it possible for somebody to, his heart is the right heart, disposition toward God and him not bow down? You know, the, we think it ridiculous something we see the Muslims, they, they pray at certain times of the day. And you know wherever they are, they stop immediately where they are, they pull out their rug, and they bow down publicly. I remember years ago, I came down and I was downtown New York City in Manhattan. We went to go see... Uh, the site where the Twain Towers came down and they were in the midst of building uh, the new tower. And I was in Manhattan and uh, I, I saw a man, a Muslim man, who in the middle of the street got his rug out, prayed, and physically bowed himself down. And so I just want to stop here and ask this question. 
Have you ever bowed down to God? Now, understand here, this may seem like a strange question, but what is, why is it a strange question? When he says, I want you to worship the implications, the very word, if we say today, hey, we believe as Baptists that you have to be baptized by immersion because that's what the word means. Do we not say that? And we say that if you sprinkle someone, that's not baptism. So when God says, when they came up to that and he said, I want you to worship, the implications of that is they're doing what the word says they are doing. They are bowing down before God. Let me ask you this. Is there anything about our God that brings us to our knees? Is there anything about God that is worthy to be worshipped and revered and adored? Is there anything that we know about God that causes the arrogance and the pride to be knocked out of us? You see, before they ever take the next step, God says, come up to me, and while you're still afar off, you're going to pause and you're going to worship afar off. In verse 2, he says, and Moses alone, here's the further instruction, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh. Now, I believe here what is happening, I believe the description of how this progresses is that in verse 1, he says, now all of you, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, you're going to come up and you're going to worship afar off. And while you're worshiping, Moses is going to go keep going. While you're worshiping, Moses shall, uh, notice, alone come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And so this is step number two. Notice you see the progression. God says to uh, the uh, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, Moses, come up. And then he tells Moses, come near. The first step is come up, worship. But then for Moses, come near. Come near. That's the second step. Now I want you to notice that the place where Moses is near, what is that place? Well, we find here in our text that that place near God is the place where God communicates, in this chapter, words. Words. It is the place, notice in verse 3, and Moses came and told the people, notice, all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. So I believe here he's referring back to what happened in the last three chapters. In other words, we don't read about him coming up at the beginning of chapter 21. Here he says, that's what happened. That's where it happened. That's where God gave the words, namely, verse 3, all the judgments. Well, we just read all the judgments in the last few chapters. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the, notice, words which the Lord hath said we will do. Now, it's interesting. I want to pause here and say that the place where, where Moses is near God is the place where God communicates. And he communicates, notice, words. He is not communicating ideas or thoughts to Moses. Now, this is very important because we as Bible believers, we believe that every word of God is pure. We believe that every word of God is inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so we believe in the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. That we don't have the thoughts of God in the Bible, but we have the very words of God in the Bible. 
And when we understand that, understand Moses here is not saying, all right, well, here's the idea of what God said. In verse 4, the Bible says Moses wrote all the words. Now, that's important. God spoke words, and Moses wrote the words down. And then he communicated to the people the very words of God. So the people understand. When they hear, heard Moses, they weren't thinking, well, that's a nice thought, Moses. They thought to themselves, that's the words of God. The words of God. So as we come up, when we approach God, I think what we learn here is that there has to be in us an attitude of reverence where we are prostrate before God, where we stoop before God, where we bow down before God. That's in the act. But then the spirit is that we are brought low, that the arrogance, the pride is knocked out of us. And by the way, that's interesting that Jesus would begin there with his disciples in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are they that, what? What's the first Beatitude? Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall see God. In Matthew chapter 5, if you turn there, I'll show you that in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, the morn is the second one. The first one is, here it is, yeah. Verse 3, blessed, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are, what is it, the poor in spirit. He's not talking about those who are materially poor. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. Those who are broken in the presence of God. Those who recognize that they are nothing in the presence of God. And Jesus with his disciples, as it begins with this beatitude, the first beatitude, the most important beatitude, why? Because it's where it begins. And so if you don't get this right first, you're not going to be able to keep any of the other Beatitudes because we have to recognize our complete dependence on God. And so they approach God with worship and then Moses comes near and when he comes near, that is where the place where God communicates with man. But what we learn from this here as we look at actually what, uh, what God communicated to Moses, we learn something very important here. That although we see that the scene is God communicating to Moses, and Moses communicating to man. But what is the certainty that Moses is right? That the words that Moses says are true. Well, God solves that problem by saying that my people are going to be governed not by the words of Moses, not by what you heard, the people of God are going to be governed by the written word. That's what he communicates. By the way, why does God do it that way? He does it specifically because God could have just spoken to all the people. Could he done of? He said, all right, let's gather all the children of Israel and let me say this to everyone. And you kind of record it as you hear it. No. God is going to speak to Moses and Moses' responsibility is going to be to write the words down. Then it's going to be to read the words to the people and then it's going to be to teach the people the very words of God. Now that happens in our text. Notice in verse 3. And Moses came and told the people 
all the words of the Lord. Whose words were they? The words of the Lord, not the words of Moses. And all the judgments that we just read, chapter 21, 22, and 23, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And so here we see that the words were spoken by God. But here's the next step in verse 4. And Moses, what's the next word? Wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see that God spoke the words, the words were spoken by God. The words then were written, and I'll say the words were written by Moses, but understand, I don't like to say written as if he's the originator. I like to say recorded. That's what he did. He just recorded what God said. He didn't make anything new. He didn't paraphrase what God said. He wrote the very words that God said. And by the way, it's interesting that throughout this we find in verse 4, and Moses wrote, what's the next word? All the words of the Lord. He didn't leave anything out. He wrote all the words of the Lord. And notice what happens next in verse 7. And he took the book of the covenant and notice what he did. And read in the audience of the people. And so God spoke the words. Moses wrote or recorded the words. And then Moses read the words. Well, what happens next? Verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up unto me into the mount, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone, and a law and commandments which I have written. Notice here what God says. Just so you know, Moses, you didn't write it. I wrote it. You're just the penman. See, that's why we believe in inspiration. Every word of God is pure. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. And so we find here that he says... And a law and commandment which I have written that thou, Moses, mayest teach them. So you see the progression to this chapter? God spoke the words. Moses recorded or wrote the words. Man read the words. Moses read the words. And Moses taught the words. Now, taught the words would mean he didn't just read it, right? Because read it is different than teaching. So he had the words, and when he read them, much like what we find later with Nehemiah and Ezra, that they explained to the people what the teaching meant. See, in, in, by the way, part of church is this. We, I, I've I could have just read Exodus 21, 22, and 23 and said, all right, I've read them to you. But there's teaching involved. Let me explain what that means. And Moses is doing that. He is teaching the people about the words. By the way, I don't, think nothing is, I don't think anything has changed since then. The Bible we hold in our hands, God spoke the words. Men wrote or recorded the words of God. All the words of the Lord. And today we have the opportunity to read the words. And we also have the opportunity to be taught the words of God. When Moses write the words in verse 4, he does two more things. After he writes the words, he rises up early in the morning and he builds an altar unto, uh, under the hill. And so Moses here, he builds an altar and notice along with the altar, 12 pillars. And the Bible actually tells us what the 12 pillars are for. The 12 pillars are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
They are representatives. And so if you could see the scene there that the altar is built and probably around the altar or maybe lined up right by the altar are the 12 pillars of Israel. We don't know the size of them, but we, are, we know that they are representative in nature. And so notice what happens and what he does with this. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And, and by the way, when we read about, about the um, burnt offerings and, sacri uh, and uh, the peace offerings, uh, those are expiatory in nature, right? The innocent blood has to be shed. And so the blood is collected, and half the blood, notice, they're collected in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took, verse 7, the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And so can you just see the scene here? He has the blood, and so he sprinkles it on the altar. And then he takes this opportunity, I don't know if it's beside, before the altar, and he reads the words to the people. And after he reads, the people say, All that the Lord hath said we will do and be obedient. And Moses, notice, took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now I want to pause here. When he says here he sprinkled it on the people, I don't believe that every single person in Israel was sprinkled with blood. That's not enough blood. What I believe he's, he, he did is he sprinkled the blood on the pillars that he erected representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Because those, again, we just saw in the passage, those are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he knows, he instructed them, he says, here's the 12 pillars, and the 12 pillars represent you. And so he sprinkles the blood on the altar, and then he turns and he sprinkles the blood on the pillars. I believe that's what he's referring to. Uh, remember, there's millions of people. Okay, I don't think he's going to go individual and sprinkle every single individual, but the representation of the people in those pillars, which is the people. And so, what is this all about? He reads, and Moses took the blood, verse 8, and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now, why would he do this? We, we today, have, we have an understanding of the blood as we have the complete revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. But let's just put ourselves in the minds of the children of Israel. What they know about the blood so far is very specific. What is it? Well, it goes back to the Passover, does it not? <laughs> That's, would be, that would be on, in the mindset of the children of Israel. In other words, throughout the last few chapters, the children of Israel have been reminded, here, you're my people, and here are some commandments that I have for you. Here's a covenant that I've made with you. But the basis of their obedience that he's demanding from his people goes back to their redemption. Now, this is very important. This is very important. The basis of him giving commands to his people is because they have already been redeemed from Egyptian bondage. Now, it's important for us for the picture and the implications that are here for us today. You see, we believe that we are born again by the Spirit of God because the blood of Christ has been applied to our lives. And after we are saved, we seek to live a life in obedience to God. But if we disobey at any point, we don't lose our redemption. We don't lose our salvation. That was settled a long time ago. 
But we as God's people desire to live in obedience and conformity to His law. We desire to please our God. And here these are the people who have already been redeemed. And He said, He reminds them as they make their commitment, we're going to obey in everything that God, all the words that God says, we're going to obey in every point. And, and He sprinkles the blood. What, what, what is He reminding them of? He's reminding them that their redemption was not based upon their own effort. The redemption was based upon what God did. The blood being applied. That's why they're here. They're not there because they're good. We know they're not. We've read about it. They're here because the blood has been applied. And so God speaks to them. And not only is the blood sprinkled on the altar, the blood is sprinkled on the people, the pillars there. And then we read that there's going to be a second scene. And so the first, remember there's two steps. The first one is come up. Uh, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders come up and worship afar off. But Moses, I want you to continue to go up and go all the way. And there is the place where God will speak. And now we have a second scene. And so I believe now, uh, I'm not saying this uh, with absolute conviction, but I believe here is that the first part of this chapter of Exodus 24, is telling us the first time that Moses went up when God gave the judgments. And he mentioned specifically the judgments in verse 4. I believe the second time that, uh, that Moses goes up, God is going to give them the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll read in the subsequent chapters. And so the first half of chapter 24 is looking back. We have the instruction, but Moses went up, and that's where he received the judgments of God. Looking in the second half of chapter 24 is there's more things that God wants to communicate specifically about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And so Moses has to go back up. And see, all this didn't happen in one meeting. You know, it's much like how God reveals Himself to us and how God speaks to us. He doesn't give us everything at once. He speaks to us little by little. And as we respond to what he speaks, and he says, I, I, I want to speak to you more, and then I want to speak to you more. And really, our lives, our lives ought to be described as a series of meetings with God, where God speaks to us. It doesn't all happen at once, right? When you get saved, God doesn't say, all right, here's everything I want to teach you. Now, hold on to these things for the rest of your life. No, we, we learn and we grow, and that happens little by little. In the second meeting with God, although we don't know what God says, we know that Moses winds up. And so notice, as we keep reading in verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And the Bible says, And they saw the God of Israel. Now, we see here, same thing happens. This is the first step. They went up, the Bible says, and in that first step, wherever that place was, it's higher than where the children of Israel were encamped. They go up to a certain place, and there they saw God. Now, let me pause here because some of you Bible students, diligent Bible students, well, wait a minute, nobody has ever seen God. Now, you're right. Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me show you a verse. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Notice uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. So he speaks of the Lord. Notice in verse 13. Let's begin in verse uh, 1 Timothy 6, 13. 
I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in times past he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Okay, so we know that nobody has seen God at any time, nor can see God. So here when we read, they saw the God of Israel. Pause here and keep reading. What is he saying? What did they see? Well, notice, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of the sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he said not his hand, also they saw God and did eat and drink. Now, what I believe he is referring to is that they did not see God in as we think. Again, it's important. Remember, God is a spirit. Now, very important. Any manifestation of God, whether it was the burning bush in chapter 3, that's not God. Did Moses have an encounter with God? Certainly. Did he see the glory of God? Certainly. When the children of Israel were led by a pillar of fire by day, was that God? No, it was the glory of God. You see, when they saw God, I'm not thinking here they saw God and they could describe because, look, there is no description of God. They saw God, that means they saw His glory. And what I'm saying here is that no image could be made of God because He is not described here. You see, just, uh, just what is under His feet, <laughs> not even His feet are described, just what is under His feet. It's, isn't it interesting that they would see God and they would say, well, here's what we saw. No, they talk about what's under Him. Why? I believe that whatever manifestation of God, whatever it was, it was not God. It was the glory of God a manifestation of His glory, so that man might not walk away from that. Remember, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. God does not want His people to have any representation of Him whatsoever. He does not want His people to bring Him down to man's level because God is so much greater than man. And that, or that man, what man can produce of his ideas about God. See, no image could be made after this meeting of God and how God is described because He is not described just what is under His feet. You know, it's interesting that when you think about um, uh, books that are being written today about people who went to heaven and then they saw God and then they described God, that's inconsistent, inconsistent with the Word of God. How can you describe someone who the Bible doesn't reveal? But yet people go on and on and people get amazed by those books. And I'm saying, you're bringing God down in a limited human view. And you can't do that to God. Going back to the basic commandment, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. That's not just talking about uh, worshiping a false god. It's talking about not making a representation of God himself. We cannot do that. Don't bring 
God down. But they saw the glory of God. He says, describes what is under him. Uh, they saw what was below him, not him. They saw the glory of him, not him. Uh, he says in verse 11, And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Uh, also they saw God and did eat and drink. Uh, and here we have a, a further introspection to this scene of what they saw, because here's the truth. If any man comes into the very presence of God, the Bible says they would die. But you notice what verse 11 says, nobody died. Nobody died. Uh, he says, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he, God, laid not his hand. It is, by the way, we read that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. But uh, do you notice the order of this chapter? Chapter 24, they worship. They worship. Pride and arrogance is knocked out of them. They bow down before God. They are all reverent before God. And then God speaks in that moment. And then they see Him. Not, not Him and His physical attributes, but they see His glory. And what they learn here is that God is a merciful merciful God that his people are not consumed and so we see two things here when they see God we see his glory and we see his mercy that's who God is he is holy but he's merciful he is righteous but he is gracious all encapsulated in those two verses by the way it is interesting the timing that they only see God. It's recorded for us that they see God after the blood was sprinkled on them. Not before. They were worshiping before. God spoke to them, but before they saw the glory of God, the blood has been sprinkled. Which shows us that we have no merit to come to God. And if it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ in the presence of God, every man would be consumed and wither. And so we read of the closing verses in verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mountain. I want you to notice those words in verse 12. And be there. Now we, we, we look and we say, Well, come up to the mountain and be there. What does that mean? Where else is it going to be? The words there, be there, means expect to be there for some considerable time. Come up, notice, unto me in the mount. And Moses, I want you to be there. And we know as we proceed in the chapter that Moses is going to stay, notice, six days before being called upon into the presence of God. Notice, uh, the Bible says he commands him, I will give thee, verse 12, tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And so, and notice, Joshua comes along with Moses. We see in another portion that, Moses, uh, that Joshua was with Moses, but then probably at the top, we see that Moses is going to come in the midst of the cloud. Probably Joshua is not going to come in the midst of the cloud. But you know who's the next uh, leader for the nation of Israel after Moses? Joshua. And everywhere Moses went, Joshua followed. He, he was the closest one, the nearest one after Moses to God. What a wonderful position. 
He goes into the Mount of God, verse 14, He said unto the elders, Tarry ye here with us until we come again and unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And so basically, Moses, I'm going to go to the top. And so if the children of Israel come, don't let them come out to the top. They can speak to Aaron and, um, and Hur if they have any matter. And so they're going to, they, they organize that. Verse 15, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And so here we, we notice what is referred to as the presence of God is the glory of the Lord. Abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire. So here we have a description of the glory of the Lord. It's like devouring fire. That's not God. It's the glory of God. On the top of the mountain, the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. And so let me bring you to some conclusion. This is the place at the top of the mountain where Moses comes. And that's the place of communion with God. And before we come to the place of communion... There has to be the right heart disposition, and that is of worship. With the intention to say, God, I want you to speak. Whatever you say, we will do. And here's what we learn about communion with God that I think we can take away from what this teaches us about God. First of all, we see that communion with God is first His desire. Did Moses one day just think of himself, well, I'm just going to go up to the mountain to meet with God. No, God came to Moses and said, I want you to come up. All the way back from the very moment that man sinned, remember that man was not pursuing immediately when they sinned. They didn't come to God and run to God and say, God, we're sorry, we're sorry, you've sinned against you. No, they were hiding from God, but God went after them and He sought them and He wanted to have fellowship with them. God is always the initiator. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That we who are human beings far removed from God, and sometimes we've all gone astray, we've all turned away, we've all sinned against God, and yet God is the one who's pursuing us. God is the one who wants to speak to us. Oh, what a wonderful thing. You see, communion with God is first His desire, not ours. It is first His desire. The second thing we learn about communion with God is that communion with God is not attained without serious pause. Now, what we learn here in this chapter is, notice, God says, come up. And remember, He says, when you come up, I want you to be there. You see what God does? You're going to get up there and you're going to have to wait, Moses. You're going to have to pause. Doesn't Moses have a lot to do? He's the leader of millions of people. That's why he said to Aaron and her, hey, y'all need to take care of business while I'm away. Make sure I'm not disturbed. Do you see that? He organized that because he knew that God told him, when you go up, you're gonna, you need to be there, Moses. In other words, don't be distracted. Don't let anybody come up to the mountain because when you're there, Moses, I want you to be there. And God is teaching Moses that the place of communion is a special place. And it is not attained without serious pause without certain measures taking place in Moses' life. And Moses had already organized, says, I don't want to be disturbed because God wants me to be there. 
And I know the, 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 the life that we all live. We're all busy. Man alive, everybody's busy. Are we too busy for God? For communion with God? If communion with God is not, uh, if communion with God is to be attained, it, it is to be attained with serious pause. What is God trying to teach Moses in that moment? Why is God making him wait six days? Could not God have spoken to him day one? Of course. He's teaching Moses something. What? That God is worth waiting for. That God is worth communion with, communing with. That's my next point, really. I go into the next point, but the next point, the third point I have is that communion with God is worth waiting for. It's worth organizing our lives so that God can speak to us. So, by the way, again, remember the steps of the chapter. When we have a desire to, for God to speak to us, where do we begin? We have to begin with a worship attitude. And say, God, God, you're God, and I'm man, and I'm falling down prostrate before you. I'm humbling myself before you because I want you to speak to me. And when we get to the place where God can speak to us, sometimes it's going to take pause. Have you ever maybe prayed or asked for God's blessing or said, God, would you speak to me? And there seems to be no sound. There seems to be no voice. Or you're reading the Bible and God is not speaking to you. It says, well, I've given 30 minutes and I still haven't heard. Would you maybe take a little longer? Then pause. Is God not worth waiting for to hear from heaven what He has to say to us? Communion with God is worth waiting for. We also see number four that communion with God is when God speaks. Notice, do you see the, the two different things? When they're on step one, they worship. But when they get to the top of the mountain, when Moses gets to the top of the mountain, that's when God speaks. In other words, Moses... Don't do anything now. You've already, you've already worshipped. You already have the right heart disposition. Now that you've waited, here is what communion with God means. God speaks. Now, I, I want to be very careful here because we live in a Christianity that's very shallow. And people are looking for today for an experience and for feelings. And today we have people who practice in Christianity things like spiritual yoga. With you, well, empty yourself of everything and kind of meditate with yourself and empty your mind and, and no, 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 no. Don't do any of that nonsense. Don't empty your mind. Fill your mind with God and His Word. It's the complete opposite. Fill your mind with God and humility before God and commune with God and, and understand that when, when you are communing with God, here it is, God will speak. And here as Moses is going to commune with God, God is going to speak words. And let me just be as, as, as blunt and as careful as I can be. When God will speak to you, you know that it's Him speaking because it's the same thing that He says in His Word. A lot of times people say, well, God spoke and God told me to do this or God told me that this lifestyle is okay. And it disagrees with his word? Let me say, that was not God. Your flesh may be speaking. The culture of the world may be speaking. But that's not God. When God speaks, it's going to be in agreement with his word. That's why you have to fill yourself with the word of God. The spirit is the one who authored the word. And when he speaks, he speaks of Christ. He doesn't speak of himself. 
That's why a lot of times people, they want an experience or they want a feeling. I want to feel good. You know what feels good? When God can speak. When God speaks, that feels good. That the God of heaven would speak to us. So, it's the place where God speaks. Communion with God also is a place that is worth our lingering. How long is Moses spending on the top of this mountain? 45 days. Now, I'm not asking, I, here, we're not Moses, I understand that. We're not asked to come to the top of the mountain and to go there for 45 days. But how much time do we spend? And when we do spend the time in communion with God, is that time at times worth lingering for? You see, this is not every single day of Moses' entire life. But there are seasons in his life where he's going to have to linger in communion with God. There's one more thing we learn, and that is communion with God is always manifested in a practical way. And what I mean by that is, is this an experience for Moses? Surely it's an experience for Moses, but that's not all it is. Something practical is going to be the result of communion with God. What is the result of communion with God? The law of God, the commandments of God, the judgments of God. That's the practical result of communion with God. Moses is not going to come down to the mountain and say, well, here's my experience. I've had a wonderful experience. I felt all fuzzy and warm inside, and I wish that you had the same experience that I did. I wish you could come up to the mountain and experience what I did. No, no. He's going to say, here's what I experienced with God. He spoke to me, and here's his words. You see, communion with God always has a practical application to our lives. God does not reveal himself to us so that we might feel good about ourselves. God reveals himself to us and speaks to us so that we might submit and obey him. It always means something practical. So may the Lord help us in consideration of those truths. Let's pray.